So these guys signed the SPA, the investment documents, and we're just sitting and waiting for us to finish the due diligence and, and that process. So at the end of the eight months, we got back to them and told them, listen, we have no lead investor. Let's move forward with what we, you did. And the result was horrific. They just pulled their agreements. They decided not to invest. And we were left with nothing. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. And I bet you're exposed to investment risks right now. To reduce it, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist that I've made specifically for you based on the lessons learned from all of my guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guests, Dror, Tamir. Dror, are you ready to rock? Absolutely, always. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me introduce you to the audience. Dror is a serial food and nutrition entrepreneur with one exit under his belt. His passion is to improve the health of children and families through better nutrition. He is a 19-time international innovation and sustainability award-winning entrepreneur and has held various positions with several Israeli and international companies over the past 30 years after a career at the Israeli Navy. Dror is the CEO and co-founder of the startup Hargo Food Tech. The company is dedicated to the development and production of alternative protein ingredients that are healthier for humans and more sustainable to grow. The company is the world's first commercial grasshopper protein producer. Dror, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. I think you said it all, almost. I would just thank you for the introduction, Andrew. And I, I would just add that I was born in a kibbutz in Israel, and my grandfather was the chairman of that kibbutz. As the chairman, he established two food companies. One is called Galam, the largest corn processor in Israel today. He was also the first CEO of that company. Then he established Ambar, which is today the largest feed producer in Israel. He also served on man the management team of that company. However, I give the credit to my personal passion to food, agriculture, and industry to my grandmother because she was the cook of the kibbutz and as a very young boy, she used to wake me up at 4 a.m. and drag me to the kitchen to crack a thousand of eggs and feed everyone. <clears throat> and I would just add that from that period of, at the kibbutz, as, again, as a young boy, I remember stories of my grandparents about the 1950s. Israel used to suffer from both food security and locust swarms flying in and destroying all the crops. While the kibbutz members used to run to the fields and scare the grasshoppers away, they saw other Jews, Yemenite and Moroccan Jews, coming to the same fields with sacks, collecting tons of grasshoppers and eating them. So I learned at a very young age that grasshoppers are food for many people around the world and that they are the only kosher insect out there. Hmm. And 35 years later, when I was looking at the alternative, pro, the, the protein challenge around the globe, the solution was waiting for me. I knew I, knew I had the solution. That's a great story. And in fact, here in Thailand, we have push carts with people selling fried bugs. So yes. it's, it's not an uncommon thing. I remember 
many years ago going to a village in the in a pretty poor area and i saw a lady with a, a little bag over her shoulder that looked kind of like you would keep fish in there it's like a basket and then she had a little net but she wasn't in a in a uh, pond she was really at at a puddle a big puddle you know very very shallow and then she had this little net and she was catching something she asked i asked her to look inside and i looked in and it was just these little little bugs that were on top of the water i forget what they're called but she had about you know probably 50 of them in her bag and she looked at me and she said that's dinner <laughs> <laughs> why not 2.5 billion people across the world consume insects as part of their diet knowingly the yeah. rest of us also consume insects but we don't want to know about it <laughs> <laughs> all right well now it's time to share your worst investment ever and since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story Well, first, I start by saying that you see, I invested all my resources for the last six years in insects, and it is not my worst investment. So that's a good thing. But I would talk about it from the angle of an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, usually you don't have money. You don't have enough money to what you want to do. So your main resource is your time, your ability to spend your time and your ability to think. That is one thing. The second thing, as an entrepreneur, you have to be the most optimistic person on the planet because you are the only one that will always know that your startup is going to succeed. And you need to convince everyone around the globe that this is the next success. And so you have to be super optimistic. But this leads you to a situation when you can actually make a very uh, the wrong investment. Most of the time as an entrepreneur, you are actually trying to raise funds to develop your business and grow it. And you are meeting tens and hundreds and sometimes thousands of potential investors. Always before every meeting, I'm sure that this is the person or this is the VC or this is the company that is going to fall in love in me and the business and they're going to spend the funds that I or, or invest the funding that I, that I need. I have to believe that. But this eventually leads me to do some mistakes, which means since I'm so optimistic, I'm following them and I'm trying to provide whatever they ask for. Any information, every analysis, every presentation. And this consumes a lot of time resources and sometimes even take you out of focus of what you do. And too many times I found myself wasting a lot of time, a lot of resources, and eventually receiving no investment. So which brings me actually not to square one, but actually to take a few steps back because that time cost me a lot of money. And I want to share with you a specific story of a lead investor. In one of our previous rounds, we had a lot of interest from investors. One of them approached us and said, "We'll be your lead investor." From day one, They said, we're going to invest 70% of the funds that you need. And that that's was, exciting. Oh, that, that was amazing. These are the guys that we want to work with. We discussed with them the valuation. We discussed with them the terms. We discussed with them what will be the plan. And we went into due diligence. The longest due diligence I ever had. Eight months of due diligence. Now, part of the due diligence, which the due diligence meant that we had to answer questions. Tens and hundreds of questions, 
of every aspect of the company, which is part of a due diligence. That's the cost of trying to raise money. But another part of that specific due diligence included discussions with experts that they hired about the main, the heart of the company, the main know-how. And I must say it made me feel really uncomfortable because it meant we need to share with persons that will never have any relation with our project and may even become competitors because we are going to provide them a lot of know-how that they do not have right now. So I did not feel comfortable, but you know, we need the money. We have to open the books and show what we do. And we had those discussions, very long discussions and eventually received positive recommendations. And after this very long time, after eight months, it was time to, to the moment that you say, show me the money. <laughs> they said, we are going to invest the funds that we uh, promised, but at a third of the valuation we discussed, which was unacceptable for us. They actually used the pressure we got into because of losing all that time. And things got even worse than that. Because while discussing with them and going through the due diligence, we had discussions with other investors. We already, and since those were supposed to be follower investors, we did not negotiate with them the terms. We just told them we have a lead investor, what the valuation will be with them. You are going to enjoy the same terms. So these guys signed the SPA, the investment documents, and we're just sitting and waiting for us to finish the due diligence and, and that process. So at the end of the eight months, we got back to them and told them, listen, we have no lead investor, let's move forward with what we, you did. And the result was horrific. They just pulled their agreements, they decided not to invest, and we were left with nothing. And of course, after wasting over eight months, the runway was getting very close to zero. So. I think the eight months of horrible due diligence was my worst investment ever. And since then I learned, if things are not moving forward, I'm not going to invest too much time. So let's talk about what you learned from this experience. Imagine there's a lot of startups out there that are listening to this interview and that will listen. And they're in the same exact boat. And I'm just wanna curious, like how would you list out the lessons that you learned? Well, I would say that there are a few lessons that you can learn from that. First one, as much as you are optimistic, it's crucial to bring in another person from your team that will be your devil advocate, that will tell you, listen, you're wasting your time, they're not going to invest, that he will ask the hard question that you personally are not able to admit. But that will be my first lesson. Mm. Don't do it on your own, have someone joining you and actually showing you the mirror. You're not gonna get money, move to the next one. That's the first, don't do things on your own. And that's also relevant for any aspect of your startup. Have good people joining your trip. Second thing is that I learned, you can't chase investors too much. Mm -hmm. You can't apply too much pressure. If you apply too much pressure, they learn, they feel that pressure, they will not invest. If you try too hard with an investor, as we did, eventually they will not invest because they feel this weak spot and they can actually offer you a deal that you will not expect or accept. So again, mm. think how much pressure you want to apply and take your time. 
And if they do not come back to you, probably they, will, they don't want to invest. It's such a uh, challenging, you know, it's such a, it's a dilemma because on the one hand, you know, you want to work with them and all that, but on the other hand, you've got to be a little bit tough with them, but you can't be too tough. And so many things that I think about, maybe I'll share a couple of thoughts I had from your story. I think the first one is time really is money in the case of a startup. You know, I remember myself working in investment banks, Citibank and other places. And if you have a bad day and you don't do any work, no problem. You have a bad week, you have a bad month and you don't do any work or almost no work, company is going to be just fine. But when it comes to a startup that has very limited resources, time really is money. And if you get caught up in something like this that takes you away from the business, it really is like spending money. And so the buyer may say, well, you know, they, he can try to push it out. But the reality is, is that time truly is money in the case of a startup. The second thing is something that you didn't mention explicitly, but it's something that I've felt myself in my own startups and also from things that I would say. And I say, we always talk about a runway in a startup. And when we talk about a runway, we want to have as long a runway as possible. And that means enough money that we can get this plane off the ground. But that's not the runway that I think about anymore. There's an emotional runway. And the emotional runway is the confidence that people who are working for you have in you to make the idea work, to get the funding, to bring it all together and get the results. And this type of thing dragging this out, you know, can really damage the confidence and that causes the emotional runway to be even tougher. And that's why I think your advice about the devil's advocate is so good because as a leader, we need to know when we're spending too much energy and confidence that people have in us. And so that two things, time is money and that there's an energy or emotional runway that we also have to think about. Is there anything you'd add to that? Absolutely. I think your second comment is super important. What I want to add to that is you have investors. You also have employees or partners that work with you. And the only way that you all can actually deal with problems or losses, as I described, is to have them part of the journey. So if your devil advocate is actually one of those partners, one of your investors, one of your management team, one of your partners, things will look different. They will be mm. part of the process and you will retain a little bit of the confidence they have in you. You know, uh, recently I've been working on a presentation. On Monday, I'm going to give a presentation to a group of students, about 12 teams of students from different, it's a competition. It's a case or a business competition for students. And I've been a judge in that competition for many years. And I take my experience as an entrepreneur myself and my experience as a financial analyst. And I'm known for being pretty tough as a judge, kind of like Shark Tank type of thing. Well, <laughs> these competitions have been recorded. I've been doing it for more than 10 years now. So I went back to the recordings and I, I got 216 questions that I asked, each in a separate clip that I cut out. And then I classified them into different categories, 
questions about marketing, questions about finance, questions about operation. And I've come up with 24 questions that you need to answer. In this case, for my lecture on Monday, it's going to be to win a case competition. But the reality is, is that it really is all about, it's the same thing, whether you're raising capital in a case competition or in reality. And I just think about, I just was thinking about how challenging it is, because even when you think you've got a good presentation, you've got a good, your documents are good, there's still a lot of due diligence. And you really remind me of that. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's the challenge. Yep. I want to add something to what you just said. Yes, there are a lot of questions, 24, maybe even more than 24 questions that you have to have excellent answers to. But the thing is, as much as your answers are good for you and your business the way you see it, they may not be good answers to the person that is sitting in front of you, to that investor. Maybe they are looking at different business models. Maybe they're looking at different categories. So as an entrepreneur at the beginning, I was trying to update or adjust my answers to what the second or to what the other person is looking for. And I found out that it's not the right way to go. Mm -hmm. I need to stick to what I believe, to what I think the business should be. Doesn't mean that I shouldn't listen and have the patience, but still stick to what I believe in. And if the right partner is there, we'll have a partnership. I love that. It's a good fit for in any case. I think the point, the word that's a good word in this case is authenticity. You're authentic about what you're doing. You're on a mission and you're doing the best you can and you're inviting that investor to come with you. You may have discussions, you may get support from them, they may get things from you, but ultimately you're the one leading the vision. So, yeah. For my was, personal experience, yep. every time an investor asks me to update the presentation, tweak the business model, change the product, and I did that, they never invested. Mm. Never, not a single time. Yeah. If in a meeting someone is asking me to do that, I would probably not follow up. Yeah. Or say, I think it would be better if you put in 50% of the money that you want to put in, and then we can talk about it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Excellent. So, That's the perfect answer. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Don't be blind. Be real to yourself. As an entrepreneur, you just want to give your pitch. Mm. We forget to listen and absorb from the other party. So be more open, listen more, understand what the messages are. And if it is needed, go to the next one. Probably that's not your partner. And this will save you a lot of money, much more than you can get from that partner. Yep, beautiful. Last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? <laughs> Raise money. <laughs> exactly. Always exactly. raising. Actually, actually, that's always. So I don't need to say that. That we're we're entrepreneurs. We need to raise money. Number one goal is to sign a significant joint venture with one of the leading food producers around the world and bring our products to to one of the largest markets. We have several deals that in discussions, and I believe we will be able to sign at least two of them in the next twelve months. And. Beautiful. From that moment, we are on a rocket ship. Beautiful. 
Well, for the listeners out there, I'll have all your information in the show notes. So if you're interested in investing, you're interested in buying, come to the show notes, click the links and contact or I'm sure he would be happy to talk. But don't drag it out for eight months because he's not going to allow that to happen. (laughs) All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to reduce risk in your life by going to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to download my risk reduction checklist. See how you measure up. As we conclude, Dror, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yes, two things. One is you have to to remain optimistic after you hear all those stories. You have to remain optimistic because you're going to fail all the way. Remain optimistic. And the second one, don't wait for the perfect moment. Just go out and do what you want to do. Beautiful. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, saying, I'll see you on the upside.